0: The Republic of Poland presents. In association with the Eastern Bloc and the European Union. Starring Andrzej Duda, The Law and Justice Party, Alexander Lukashenko. Tucker Carlson, Gitanis Maceda, Eggles Levitz, Olaf Schultz, Lekia, Czechia, and Rus. The musician Lou Bega. The Lion of Damascus, Bashar al Assad. Polish children's EDM artist Seppis Swiatlana Szykuska The Polish football player Robert Lewandowski Victor Orban uh, Anita rock Rok- Wo- Wojciech. Novicki nu- 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 Noviki Agnieszka Koboszczkauskie, oh fuck, Paul, Karolina Naja Plaska, <laughs> Stanislas Kozbiowski. <laughs> Based on the book by Stephen Ambrose, *Band of Korva. The story of Lech, Czech, and Rus dates back at least to the 14th century. At least that's when uh, we see the earliest written records of the story. But the myth is the Slavic people's founding one, much like the Italians who decided with a limitless creative space upon which to birth the mythology of their people went with, hey, our ancestors found a dog and sucked on its tits until we built a society. Poland and the Slavic community, as it it were, uh, decided to go with something a little different. And I always love these uh, founding myths because you, you see inside them the, the slightest glimmer of the way cultures see themselves, the things they prize, the dynamics between their relationships uh, with each other in society and with their neighbors. And I think the story of Lechek and Rus is no different. As the story goes, there was once a Slavic Garden of Eden. Google results show that now the Garden of Eden in eastern Poland is a popular sex club where one can purchase sex-trafficked Ukrainians at an exchange rate of basically one Estonian per three Ukrainians. But in the founding myth, the Garden of Eden is very much real. It was a dense forest filled with potential game and wives. Its rivers overflowed with fish. And the Pan-Slavic community there all lived together in peace and happiness. They were so successful, in fact, that their numbers swelled. Families begat more families, begat more families, and eventually, they ran out of game to hunt and fish to fish. And so they called together the three wisest men uh, of the tribe, the three brothers Lech, Czech and Roos. And the brothers sat in council. They decided, we are a family, of course, but we're a growing family. We know that we'll always love and respect each other, but we can't do that if we cannot survive. So each brother, uh, with great sadness, took a direction and gathered their caravans and embarked upon a journey to find a new homeland. Now, Rus looked to the east, and seeing the seemingly endless steppe and verdant fields before him, turned to his brothers and said, fuck you, fuck you, drop AWP and rush B. Rush B, Suka blah, rush B. And thus was the beginning of Russia. The second brother, Czech, gathered his caravans and headed to the south and west. And Czech's journey was more arduous than Rus's. Czech traveled through the plains, up the mountains, through endless valleys and up to the peaks again, until finally, standing atop some fucking Slavic mountain range, Czech looked out before him and saw pristine seas and endless fertile fields, and with pride swelling in his chest declared to his family, We are home. Look at these fields for farming the sea for trades and fishing. We will never want here. But most importantly, from our tallest peaks, we may see the women of all of our neighbors and tell them, my God, you are so beautiful. Have you ever been to Serbia? And then imply that we have stars in our eyes or perhaps an eggplant in our pants. And Czech's family asked, what the fuck is Serbia? A question that, more or less has gone unanswered ever since. But the land was beautiful and workable and honestly, probably the best of the bunch. And so thus were founded the Southern Slavs. Now, Lech, the third brother, a very important thing to remember about him is he's the Polish one. And when I talk about sort of uh internal views of a people being reflected in founding myths i think you see this in lex journey because it took about three weeks for lex entire family to hate him uh, and think he was a dumbass because lex decided to go to the north and west and that route fucking sucked sure they had to make their way through the mountains and then the valleys but on the other side they found fucking desert that's right. Did you know that the only genuine desert-like area in Europe is in Poland? Yeah. It, it's an hour outside of Krakow, and it's called the Polish Sahara. It's like God took a look at the land and went, Mmm, it's shitty, but it doesn't feel completely shitty yet. So, needless to say, Lech and his family forded through the desert, only to be met with swamps. And on the other side of the swamps, a deep, dark forest filled with all of the satyrs and witches that have now come to dominate the Polish parliament. But at the time, they were not so friendly to the national project and made life miserable for Lech and his family. And so they kept walking through forest, through swamp, through desert, until finally Lech's family revolted. Sitting in some god-forsaken swamp where even the trees emanate drum and bass, Lech's family turned to him and said, We need wisdom. Oh, that we could be back in our Garden of Eden with our brothers, listening to the gods for signs, for guidance on how to live our lives. But the gods seem silent here in this swamp. And so Lech, owing to his Polish disposition and general paucity of ideas, became forlorn and fatalistic, and sitting there in the muck decided, perhaps we shall wait for the gods to give us a sign. And the gods did. At that very moment, a powerful, majestic white eagle took flight from a branch towards the setting sun, and Lek, seeing the silhouette of that powerful bird against the red sun, took that as a sign and began to follow it. And he followed it across most of what would become Poland until finally the bird came to its nest in an area that, while shitty, was 10% better than all of the surrounding lands. And Lech turned to his family and he said, Did you not want to sign? Is this not a sign? Have the gods not spoken, and shown us that if such a majestic creature might make its home in these lands, then so too might our one-day majestic empire flourish in these hard lands. And Lech built a castle and founded what would become Poland. Now, Obviously, that did not happen. <laughs> that, either the the founding of, of Poland as a great empire, uh, or that founding myth. Um, but that's that's fine. you know It's not like George Washington chopped down the fucking cherry tree, right but I, I like this this founding myth because it, it tracks both geopolitically and personally. I don't know about you, but you know I, I have a brother, and I remember growing up. We shared this really small bedroom. It was the size of about a walk in closet. It was two twin beds, and then about a, a foot of space, if we're being generous, uh, between the beds, long ways. And so, if one of you needed to get out of bed, you'd have to make sure the other person wasn't there because you'd have to walk by. And it, it was one of those rooms where you could touch both of the walls with outstretched arms. But it was basically fine. Like me and my brother got along great uh, in that tiny room for I don't know, maybe the first eight, nine, ten, eleven years. It was great, you know. I don't think we fought once in that whole time. But then something happens, you know. Time passes. You get sick of being <laughs> in the same place with with identical interests, and I just remember at one point. Uh, me and my brother got into like an argument or, or something and I went, wait a second, how are we, how are we in conflict right now? We've had the same exact experiences <laughs> and perspectives, but w- we hadn't, right? And, and even if we had, you know, after a certain point, there's a, a de- desire to distinguish yourself, to do something different. You don't want to be the, the same exact person as your brother. And from that point, we split and just never really returned. I'm a a podcasting occasionally podcasting socialist and big member of of my union and you know he's a a guy who's only ever worked for union busting firms and, and now is an Elon Musk guy and and look no hard feelings at, at all at all you know I think with the same upbringing he looked around and went my god I need to make sure uh, I never live like this again. And I kind of looked around and went, my God, I need to make sure nobody lives like this ever again. His goal, arguably more attainable. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I get it. You're into what you're into. You you believe the politics that you believe. But that world is something that I just have no interest in exploring. And so, you know, our our... Our paths are very different. Love and the death. Uh, We came from the same place, shared a lot of the same experiences. We just landed somewhere different. And I think that's a nice way of of looking at sort of the national projects of, of Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, at the end of the day, whether you are from Poland or the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Croatia, Serbia, you're Slavic. That is, that is uh, these distinctions are very important for you know the nations themselves, but to the rest of the world, you are Slavic. You live in a Slavic country. You're a Slav. Gopnik stuff. Drink vodka. Potatoes. Um, Pickpocket. When people imagine you, it is. A, a bald or balding man who is overweight with n- no shirt, yelling about something and growing increasingly red as he comes to the culmination of his rhetorical point, and married to a Slavic woman whose beauty is matched only by her unbridled hatred for her husband. <laughs> that is how the world uh, sees you as a Slav. It's like the, the anti racist argument. Uh, you hear sometimes where it's just like you know, human beings are ninety nine point nine 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 percent genotypically identical or whatever the fuck, you know. It it really the the it's the tiniest difference between us, and I feel that way about all the Slavic peoples too. Where's the brotherhood? Like, have you really drifted that far away? Are, are you, is is the cultural difference from Warsaw to Vilnius? To Moscow, so insurmountable that we need these constant conflicts. This is, this is unresolvable, really. It is currently the year of our Slavic Lord 2022. That's right, Allah was Slavic. And we are currently having a debate between Belarus and Lithuania and Poland, still, over what cultural hegemon should rule in Vilnius. Unless you are an active or former member of the, the Teutonic Knights, you should that should be so far down your list. And that is currently an animating political force coming out of Belarus. We are still having these idiotic skirmishes over differences that exist culturally at the Planck scale. And you can see this in the Lechczyk story too, because the version I told you is the Polish version. The, the perspective from Czech is different. In fact, so in the Czech story, sometimes they go south. Sometimes they go into like Bohemia. Uh, but w- one thing from the, the Czech perspective is they remove ruse. There's no fucking ruse in their version of it. There is Lek and Czech, two homies who, who just figured it out. And that's it. Look, it didn't happen. It's a founding myth. It's your story, you know? If you want to marry Sue yourself, I mean, Poland Poland made themselves look like an idiot, so good on you. But if you want to be the hero, if you want to remove the annoying side character, go for it. And they did. There's just <laughs> there's no ruse. That's the Czech version. I actually don't know what the Russian version of uh, the Lech, Czech and ruse story is because I'm telling it from the Polish version, and why would I fucking care? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I feel that way. I mean, I, I researched this story to tell it, and I still didn't bother looking up the Russian side. So even though I feel this solidarity with, with Slavic peoples, even though I think there should be this brotherhood, the fracture is there. For whatever reason, culturally, I, I have imbibed that fracture. And, and now I'm I'm clearly behaving. Uh, along the lines that dictates. And now look, this is sort of, this can just be, this, I I think what I find, (laughs) I think why I love Slavic factionalism so much is its pettiness makes it funny most of the time. I I saw a video on YouTube that, (laughs) it it was titled like, The Brothers Lechcek and Rus, and it was just a bus in Eastern Poland where a a drunk Russian-Ukrainian and and Polish guy are all just sitting in a row and then for reasons unknown to any of them they just start fighting with each other and yelling at each other and with the, by the end of the video they're all confused as to how they got they can't get themselves out of the conflict in which they have all now taken several punches because they didn't know why they were fighting before taking the blows to the head. So by the end of the video, they're all sat back down and, and sharing a drink. <laughs> At the end of the day, they're like, well, we fought for some reason. I guess uh, you want to go get drunk and then carry on with our day. The, the fight was had no existential purpose. I mean, other than, I guess, to ratify the existence of one Slav in another. Outside of that, the, the conflict was meaningless. It is petty. It is violent and it is funny. And as long as all those things are, are in the admixture at the right ratios, being a Slav watcher is, is one of the greatest geopolitical thrills in the, in the world. Uh, unfortunately, the mixture is off right now. And a huge part of that is because of one fucking perfectly spherical dictator named Alexander Lukashenko. In July of 1994, Alexander Grigoryevich Lukashenko entered office, tasked by Vladimir Putin to find the powerful Chaos Emeralds hidden in Minsk by conquering the city and turning its local animals into his servant robots. Launching a full-scale assault, Lukashenko built his fortress, the Scrap Belarus Zone, at the edge of Minsk and began his operations there, determined to find the Chaos Emeralds. Eventually, he encountered Sonic, who had learned of his actions and rushed to Minsk, and gloated how he was gonna win this time. Despite his conviction, Lukashenko began being pushed back by Sonic, who steadily liberated the captured animals and found the Chaos Emeralds one by one. Lukashenko himself tried on several occasions to defeat Sonic with his various contraptions and vehicles, but was defeated during every encounter. After Sonic entered Scrap Belarus Zone, Lukashenko sent Sonic into the ruins underneath the fortress using a trap. However, Lukashenko soon encountered him again in his laboratory. There, he tried to crush Sonic with his Latvian crusher. Upon Lukashenko's defeat, however, a chain reaction was triggered that caused Lukashenko's entire fortress to explode. This forced Lukashenko to escape using his nearby Eggmobile, although not before Sonic dealt a final blow to the hovercraft, causing him to crash on the eastern border with Poland. He's the Eggman. He looks like a fucking Eggman. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. He looks like Dr. Robotnik. Which, by the way, if you're a Slavic dictator, do that. That's what I want. That's what everyone wants. If Viktor Orban looked like King Dididi, I would understand why they're destroying the European Union. It would it would bring a certain charm to it. It would it would, it would make our already bleak existence uh, just a tiny bit funny, like farting on your way to the bottom of a ravine on a failed and fatal base jump. But, you know, unfortunately, Viktor Orban is, is just sort of a twat and... Uh, the the mayor of Casino Night Zone is causing an international crisis with the basically the gamification of European immigration standards. Or I mean, I guess it's anti-immigration standards because the whole project of the European Union has been to, produce legislation that affirms the rights of all people, and then find ways to financially sidestep that such that those people seeking rights never end up in your country demanding them. So much of the EU's policy on immigration has been, we will pay your country money to keep people there and not here. We will enforce your borders further away because it looks pretty bad when we enforce them here and Lukashenko has honestly wisely uh, started to play on that contradiction it does look bad it looks really bad when you have waves of completely vulnerable refugees sitting out there in the cold in the fucking polish forest at the border getting prodded on both sides the people firing off shots shooting laser pointers in each other's eyes throwing fence posts at each other Uh, I mean it's It looks really bad, and Lukashenko is counting on, A, the European Union's uh, stasis with regards to any meaningful change to their immigration policy, and B, their total fear of being seen as, uh, let's say, as disinterested in human rights as some of their Eastern counterparts in the Union. Uh, Look, that is a contradiction, and Lukashenko is playing it out. So we're going to get into all, all of that in a bit. Um, I already got into the early days of Lukashenko and that uh, Sonic bit that Brett almost certainly would have and should have uh, cut out. <laughs> but alas, uh, listener, there is no help coming for you. You you now have to hear this shit. It's a new dawn. It's not a better dawn, uh, but it, <laughs> it is a dawn. And so uh, moving on from that, What we're going to do is just briefly here, take a look at the three perspectives of this crisis, starting first with Belarus, then we'll hit Poland's viewpoint. And then finally, as is tradition here in the West, the last group we will consider are the actual refugees. But we're going to start with dessert, which is the fact that Alexander Lukashenko is inarguably a dumbass. He's a stupid person. He's a ridiculous person. And that has been the focus of a lot of the media on him. The fact that he does and says things that are anywhere from silly to gauche to massive human rights abuses. And for whatever reason, that media seesaw just seems always overburdened on the side of highlighting his goofiness. Um, He said, for example, uh, that coronavirus was a psychosis treatable with vodka and saunas. That's very silly to say that arguably the only thing that vodka and, and saunas treats is if you are terminally not cool enough. Have some vodka and saunas and you're, you're better. That's been at least nominally marginally solved. Uh, he said, look around this hockey game. Do you see any viruses flying around? He's stupid. That's a stupid thing to say but the john oliverness of all of it like people focusing on his stupidity because it makes them feel smart and and relatively better about themselves more elect in that american calvinist sense like there's a, an idea that or a dynamic at work that because i can perceive and categorize this thing as bad and dumb that implies i'm better and smarter i'm collectively with all the faces on my screen, taxonomizing this person as absurd. We're social proofing it to each other. We're showing that, uh, yeah, so you also think he's absurd? Yes, I do. That must mean, ergo, that we are the taxonomizers, not the subject. We are able to use our rational, reasoned, more level-headed, big picture understanding of the world and correctly identify this guy as silly dumb and bad and great he is all those things but the urge to call it out as if as if we live in a great man version of history as if the material forces of belarus as if if there was another person there the same thing wouldn't be happening because of the geopolitics of that region and because of the fact that Belarus is entirely a puppet of Russia. The nexus of the problem is not in Lukashenko's brain or his aberrations from behaviors that characterize educated people and uh, you know, our enlightened first world democracies. And yet when you look into this stuff, it's all just, this person is so dumb, we gotta get rid of the dumb person. It's the liberal technocracy brain. I I can't tell you how much I hear people I mean, here in New York, say stuff like, well, you know, I don't agree with the candidate's politics, but they are competent. To, to what end? They're competent at the wrong thing. You, if you have problems with your pipes, you wouldn't be like, yeah, I'd, I'd prefer a plumber, but, uh, you know, we got the roofer here and, and he's competent. Not at making things better for the mess you have currently. Tom Brady is competent. He's super competent. But you don't want him on your basketball team because being competent at throwing a football doesn't actually get you any closer to your aims. And it just, it just drives me crazy here that, that the way that the belief in technocracy and, and meritocracy and, and the way it's just so just married to the liberal idea of good governance now, at a priority level, that is disproportionate, right? Competence is, is good. But ideology is what allows you to perceive, identify, and address your actual problems. For example, here in New York, I, I still hear people be like, "Oh God, it'd be nice to have Bloomberg back. At least he knew what he was doing." Yeah, he was doing bad things. The the fact that he was good at them uh, is empowering to you if you're in a position of relative privilege within the economy because it. it demonstrates the elevation of the technocrat as evidence of a meritocratic system that works. A system that you, as the self-assessed competent technocrat, can actually see yourself thriving in. And, And look, all of this is just to say that focusing on Alexander Lukashenko's dumbness or absurdity is a red herring. It actually has very little to do with the problems that Belarus and migrants headed to the European Union are facing. It doesn't get you any closer to understanding or solving that problem, which, you know, if you're just in it for light entertainment, fuck it. That's all you came there for. I got, look, I got nothing wrong with, with dunking on a silly man. It it gets irritating to me when, uh, uh, people, especially liberals, uh, uh, consume the John Oliver dunking on the absurdity of a person content and think that they are, to use the the phrase, getting nutrients. Uh, They're actually learning about their world. And they're they're being motivated by a sense of actually caring about the the crisis. No, you aren't. (laughs) You you probably don't know how the crisis occurred. You don't know what steps are being taken to address the crisis. You just know there's a very silly man and a pro-democracy NGO dropped teddy bears uh, over his house and now John Oliver is selling ten dollar teddy bears to promote democracy in Belarus that is not Helping, but I I did give the preface that we're doing dessert first. So, you know, let's gorge on some empty calories here figuratively Obviously in real life reddit slash 1200 is plenty. You know what else Lukashenko said? He, he said it's better to be a dictator than gay which I'll, I'll be honest, sounds extremely homophobic and probably is. That said, I know a lot of gays. Uh, that's 90% of the people that listen to this podcast. None of you, not one of you, I'm going to say, have palaces or fighter jets. And if I'm being honest, thank fucking God. <laughs> Look, I remember in the Pete Buttigieg documentary, there's that moment where he's talking to his husband, chasen after he was like man if there i hated being gay growing up there was a a pill to stop being gay i i'd take it and chasen's just like what the fuck is wrong with you pete like what are you talking about and and that was obviously extremely depressing and and horrible to watch but if if the trade-off was you get an (laughs) f-35 (laughs) <laughs> the trade-off is you get to throw the biggest military parade whenever you want. I'm just saying, there's some, there's some sword lesbians out there that would, would have to think about it. I know, There's some weapons storks out there. There's a lot of people that use plasma rifles in New Vegas that would have to at least pause for a moment faced with the trade of, you have to be a straight, but you do get to run a despotic military dictatorship with all the accompanying toys. Although really, what's what's so bad about that is that Lukashenko is setting up a false dichotomy, because really, you should be able to be both. That's the that's the dream, actually. <laughs> gay despotism. That's the that's the future the left wants. And entirely just being a gay despot buying F-35s from NATO, just setting up your whole army full of F-35 twinks, C-130 femboys, just opening up your morning mission briefing and, and perusing Jane's information group, reading about the hot new specs on Raytheon's gayest new war fighting machine. <laughs> yeah, so I've just been reading about this new innovation here. It's the uh, gay F-117A Nighthawk. So it's sort of like the original F-117 in that It'll go to the air show, but you can only photograph it from certain angles. (laughs) That right there is the fucking dream, my dudes. Just taking the presidential plane out with an interceptor escort, flying down to Jordan so you can go to His Majesty King Abdullah II, Ibn al-Hussein's gay sovex to look at all the hot new (laughs) weapons. Just standing in a booth wearing a lanyard, talking to some guy whose favorite things are hummus and war crimes about some helmet. Like, yes, sir, that right there is the new heads-up display for the LGBT F-22, as you can see. Uh, The new standardized multi-track GUI coordinates both with the ground and puts the power of Sissy Hypno in the warfighter's hands. (laughs) Bambi 2, Fox 1, you know what I'm saying, sir? And you're just like, yes, I do. (laughs) What were we? we? Oh, Alexander Lukashenko. (laughs) In other news, I think I figured out that ninety percent thing. Uh, so yeah, he says dumb things. He also famously, so like a dictator, you know, he controls all of state media and the political apparatus and all of that. And so he has a thing that when he goes out, he doesn't allow cameras to capture him from the back because he's he's balding. he's he's losing his hair, uh, which, you know that that's a thing that happens to a lot of guys. I saw a tweet. I saw a tweet that was like, what does a 32-year-old man want for his birthday? And, and the, the post was, hair, which, yes, very funny, very, very good. Bitch, like, your titties aren't sagging at that point, too. <laughs> but, like, look, the shame isn't that he's losing his hair. The shame to me, what is so offensive, not the media control uh, either, that's bad, but the thing that drives me insane about this dumb tick of Lukashenko's in particular is you are wasting... The gift God gave you. He made you Slavic. You are allowed to be a bald fat guy. Not everyone gets to do that. There are you there is a definable archetype that you can fit easily into. It's like character actors. The character actors don't have to be super pretty. You could be if you're a character actor and you're not eating good, what why? So you, don't, you don't have to do ab workouts for your roles. Like Live it up. Enjoy your life. And I, when I see Lukashenko, like, for me, my hair is basically, I buzzed that shit as soon as it started going because I, I never liked it in the first place. And now I have emerged from the chrysalis of turning 30, a beautiful metamorphized Slavic man. I can walk around Greenpoint and people just give me high fives. It's a beautiful thing. You know, when you, when you play like fantasy games and you have to pick a race like orc or undead, undead's a race, uh, or, or elf, sometimes they'll have inherent racial traits like the night elf can go invisible or the undead can you know, steal your health or something. If you're a Slavic, you have the racial trait of you're allowed to be bald. You know, guys go so crazy with like, you know, hair plugs and treatments and moisturizer or whatever it is that trying to hold on to it. You don't, you have so much stress in your life. This doesn't have to be a source. Just own it. The world wants you to. Nobody wants to see a a well-coiffed Slavic dictator. Get real fat, get real drunk and go bald. There is no reason. You have nothing to, to lose and everything to gain. Oh, what am I even t- talking about? Okay, Belarus. Because here's the thing. Look, Lukashenko has, has been a wild card and a madman for a very long time. It didn't result at any point previous in a whole bunch of migrants hitting up the borders with Poland. So what happened, right? Uh, the first thing to realize, just setting the scene, people don't come to Europe from Belarus. In general, people don't walk uh into europe especially since the syrian civil war it's all through the mediterranean right if you're in syria you get on a ship and you head to greece or you know if you're in northern africa same thing i say ship these are extremely dangerous small crafts essentially you get on a boat you know in northern africa and you hope you can make it to italy right that is the traditional way of going about it but recently a new and what was billed as a safer way of making it into Europe uh, became available. And it became available because Lukashenko got himself, uh, he pushed a little too hard on the election crackdown and got himself into a staring contest with the European Union. And this is his threat being carried out. So it's 2020, Lukashenko wins another election. This is to be expected because he wins every election. That's five times, baby. He's got one for the thumb, Uh, but you know, you steal enough elections and act like a big enough douchebag and that's going to upset people. Those are are two things that you really should do separately. Like if you are going to steal elections, try not to be a douchebag. And if you are going to be a douchebag, have the basic decency to not steal elections. That way people can go like, Yeah, that guy's a douchebag, but he's never meaningfully subverted democracy. And that's basically the ideal ruler from the European Union's perspective. But, you know, Lukashenko fumbled it a little bit. He was running against uh, Sergei Tikhanovsky this time and decided he didn't like that, so he imprisoned him so that he couldn't actually complete the paperwork to run against Lukashenko. Uh, So Sergei's wife, Svetlana, uh, took over the campaign, and it went pretty well. I mean, it was a stolen election, but exit polls seemed to indicate that, you know, she had like 70 to 80% of the vote. Uh, unfortunately, the official polling... Befo- By the way, before polling stations even closed, Lukashenko said he won with 70% of the vote. And then once they closed, he said it was actually 80 So a little suspect... Uh, A little bit of a gradient between the exit polling and the official... A real Iowa surprise out there in Minsk, uh, if if you know what I mean. And so when that info came out, you know, this time, they've been through this before, and Lukashenko isn't even giving them uh, a basic bullshit narrative. He's mailing this one in. There's not even, like, a, a bullshit state line that you could delude yourself into believing he shut down a bunch of polling places uh any belarusians living abroad they couldn't vote at their embassy this time presumably because they would lean against the dictator of the country that they got the fuck out of but in actuality the the reason lukashenko gave is we need to shut down these polling places because of covid and it's like dude what what about all that stuff about it? If flying around the hockey game and vodka and sauna. You can't, bro. If you riff, you have to stand by the riff. You can't use it to steal elections. That's the podcaster's code. And so, not surprisingly, folks were not cool with this. Uh, a lot of people took to the streets and protested. There were mass, mass protests about the stolen election. And so, Lukashenko responded by arresting seven thousand people. Uh, torturing some of them, uh, some people were even killed in the crackdowns. Uh, you know, state police were using live ammunition, uh, rubber bullets, tear gas. You know, look, if you're listening to this, chances are you've you've been to a protest before. You, you know this sort of stuff. He said all of that was necessary to maintain order within Belarus because quote, if Belarus loses its first president, it will be the beginning of the end for Belarus. End quote, which. To be honest, maybe. Maybe. Uh, certainly the Belarus that currently exists and acts as a satellite for Russia and has that sort of direct line with Putin, the Lukashenko-Putin thing. Now, I know I sound like a MSNBC liberal here because they, they everything is Putin. But look, this is Belarus and, and Russia. This is, in fact, I mean, they are... This is a hand-in-glove situation with Putin. So the European Union and their American allies are almost certainly uh, chomping at the bit at, at the opportunity to get in there and wrest control uh, away from Russia and, and that whole sphere. Look, I bet I bet Belarus is sick with intelligence agency assets right now, is, is all I'm saying. But so European leaders did not like what they were seeing, and... Uh, the sanctions begin. We're fucking off to the races now. 14th of August, uh, European Union foreign ministers address 2020 Belarusian presidential elections. Five days later, uh, 19th of August, EU leaders discuss Belarus elections deciding that as the elections in Belarus were neither free nor fair and did not meet international standards, the EU does not recognize the results presented by the Belarus authorities. Leaders condemned the violence against peaceful protesters and affirmed that the European Union expects a complete and transparent investigation into all alleged abuses and that civil society and opposition actors must be protected from arbitrary arrests and violence. About a month and a half later, 1st of October, EU leaders agree that restrictive measures should be imposed. Uh, EU leaders called on Belarusian authorities to end violence and repression, release all detainees and political prisoners, respect media freedom and civil society, and start an inclusive national dialogue, whatever the fuck that means. They agreed that restrictive measures should be imposed and called on the council to adopt the decision without delay. P.S. The European Council also encouraged the European Commission to prepare a plan of economic support for a potential democratic Belarus. Wink! Next day, 2nd October, EU imposes sanctions. Uh, The council imposed restrictive measures against 40 individuals identified as responsible for repression and intimidation against peaceful demonstrators, opposition members, and journalists in the wake of the 2020 presidential election in Belarus, as well as for misconduct of the electoral process. Uh, Those measures included a travel ban and an asset freeze. Interesting at this point that the 40 individuals identified uh, in the first round of sanctions were once the EU claimed were responsible for repression and intimidation, but did not include Alexander Lukashenko. That wasn't until almost a month and a half after that, 16th November, uh, the council added 15 members of the Belarusian authorities, including Alexander Lukashenko, as well as his son and National Security Advisor, Victor Lukashenko, to the list of individuals. And up until that point, You know, Lukashenko's doing pretty good. He's avoided the worst of it. Sucks if you're in that crew of 40, but I mean, Lukashenko's estimated net worth is between like 5 and 10 billion. So, you know, I'd like to think he's taking care of the homies there. But man, once they added his family to the list, it changed things. Uh, After that third round, he was like, oh, yeah, sorry for locking up those 7,000 protesters. I won't lock up 7,000 protesters anymore. And then he locked up 27,000 protesters. And it wasn't much longer after that. Look, I imagine it's like anything. You get a tolerance. You know, first you jail 7,000 people. Then you jail 27,000 people. And pretty soon you're grounding planes. And that's what he started doing. On the 23rd of May, 2021, and you probably saw this, uh, a Ryanair flight that passed through Belarusian airspace was intercepted by fighter jets and forced to land. Now, the reason given was a singular email that arrived like at the same time as the the grounding was, was called by Lukashenko. Uh, he received a, an email from... Basically, fake terrorist at gmail.com saying, uh, subject line, Allahhu Akbar, body, uh, I don't know, ground the plane, I guess. And Lukashenko decided, wow, in the interests of national security and, and to defend against jihad, I must ground this plane. And it just so happened that on that plane was Roman Protasevich and his girlfriend. Now, Roman is a journalist and opposition activist i guess you would say uh and they yanked him off that plane uh tortured him allegedly and made him confess on camera to staging riots so he's still in prison uh they also his girlfriend was on that plane too they put her in prison and the the charge that they eventually got her on was doxing public officials in the belarusian government So, you know, maybe it was to protect all the passengers on that flight from an urgent terror threat, but probably it was to oppress the journalists that didn't like him. Uh, And so not surprisingly, that was a, a step too far for the EU. The European Council decides on the 4th of June to strengthen the existing restrictive measures in view of the situation in Belarus by introducing a ban on the overflight of EU airspace and on access to EU airports by Belarusian carriers Of all kinds. So that means if you're an EU member state, you're required to deny permission to Belarusian planes to land in, take off from, or overfly their territories, uh, including commercially. So quite damaging. A couple weeks later, the EU expands their sanctions regime to a total of now 166 persons and 15 entities. And that is fucking it as far as Lukashenko is concerned. He is peeved off. He, he, he ambles on up to the podium, hits the mic a couple times and just goes, okay, if I can't even ground flights with interceptors, what's the fucking point of being a dictator? It's refugee time. Uh, either take the sanctions off or I'm going to put so many fucking refugees and so much drugs on the path to Germany that it's going to ruin your fucking stupid Berlin nightclubs worse than Dubstep did. And he basically did make good on that threat. First thing he does is he starts running a whole bunch of ads in Iraq, in Syria, in Dubai, uh, about how Belarus is great and it is a doorway into Europe. Then he just opens the floodgates on tourist visas to Belarus, and you see a massive increase in the application and granting of such tourist visas, which 100% suspect there is, you know how many appropriate and reasonable Belarusian tourist visas should be issued every year? Fucking zero. There's no, there's no, no person looks at the pale blue dot and goes, what's going on there? Belarus. I mean, I guess I, I do because I'm talking about it right now. But I looked up top things to do in Belarus, and on the first, the first hit on Google is a place called the Island of Tears. The second hit is an article that starts, have you ever booked a flight and suddenly realized you have no idea what to do in Minsk, the capital of oft-overlooked Belarus? Don't worry, you not the only one. This is the level of tourism we're talking about here. So suddenly, very suspicious that so many, many people want to fly into Minsk. Well, What helped that is the national airline of Belarus, Bolavia, slashed all of their prices on tickets for routes like Damascus to Minsk, Baghdad to Minsk, Istanbul to Minsk, Dubai to Minsk. Ticket sales actually doubled for Bolavia that year. And then when the refugees arrived at the airport, they would find staff directing them <laughs> to the borders, and in some cases, even literal trucks and buses. So you see this massive buildup and then stalemate of refugees at Poland's eastern border, because the Belarusians are pushing the refugees up to the border and not letting them <laughs> walk back. They are not able to return to Minsk, or they hadn't been uh, at the time. And then Poland calls a state of emergency, starts fortifying the border, they put up the barbed wire, uh, they deploy the military, they ban journalists and create a three-mile exclusion zone where presumably only good and healthy things occur. Uh, they start doing pushbacks, which they don't call pushbacks because pushbacks are illegal under the EU's own policy. Uh, they get away with it because it's usually not them doing the pushbacks. Uh, and that's kind of what Lukashenko's play is. He's trying a sort of bad boy variation of the Turkish strategy against Poland, which, you know, if the results of the Polish Ottoman War of 1683 are anything to go by, don't do that. But when I say the Turkish strategy, what I mean is forcing the European Union to pay you to deal with their refugee standards so back in 2016 you know syrian civil war and all that the european union was facing huge migration from syria in fact so many people were going from damascus to turkey and then either trying to do a land crossing i I know i said that that wasn't a very popular route but some people did the land crossing through turkey other people went to turkey and then got ships through the Aegean to Greece. Greece is the main destination at the time. And so the EU is taking in this this huge influx. And they have these standards that say that, you know, if you attempt an EU border crossing, even an irregular one, uh, you have to have the same basic human rights standards as, you know, other refugees. And so that looks good on paper, but less good when the EU has to pick up those financial obligations. So they do one of those cost-benefit analyses. They, they act like uh, the guy in Fight Club whose job it is to look at exploded cars and decide if the price of paying out settlements to the survivors uh, and their families is higher or lower than the price of a recall and just doing the one that's most profitable. Uh, the EU does this with the status of refugees. So in 2016, the EU sent 6 billion euros to Turkey to have them block Syrians and Iraqi refugees from making it to Greece and to accept the returns of those that got through. And that got a great result. Again, not if your goal is the maintenance of basic human dignity, but if your goal is to keep refugees in war-torn regions and active conflict zones, mm, perfect. And it actually worked so well that the EU went, well, why are we just doing this with Syria and and Turkey? Why don't we build a firewall out of the Mediterranean? And so the EU expands the program. They bring in Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Jordan, Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, even fucking Moldova gets a bag. Moldova shows up for the check like hey what do we got to do we hit refugees on the head if they look at Europe yeah fine send me the money I'll I'll give you a map so you know where the fuck to send it because uh, where the fuck is Moldova but everyone hops in and what's worse is once these countries get in they don't abide by the same standards of, well, if, if you attempt to cross in the European Union, the refugees that are now arriving in North Africa to make the extremely harrowing trip across the Mediterranean, they can just be abused by whatever Moroccan psychopaths they run into at the dockyards. Uh, and the EU... Doesn't have to worry about it. They can wash their hands of the whole matter, and it, it looks great for the EU because they can still be the city on the hill and, and talk about human rights and use that as a pretext to uh, expand <laughs> into new markets and topple government. You look, we all know how the human rights stuff traditionally gets used. So they get to consi- they get to continue fronting at home, and all of the worst abuses will go on in either the home territories. Or the points of departure uh, towards the European Union, and that works pretty well. Uh, it works both ways. In fact, Turkey realizes that anytime the EU gets stingy, they can just open up the refugee gates a little bit, or you know, take a take a nap when they're supposed to be on guard duty, and all of a sudden Greece has a problem, and the EU responds by essentially paying the ransom. They give Turkey more money every time Turkey decides they need it. And so these other countries go, oh, great, this is like a protection scheme. We can just look at your Mediterranean countries and go, hey, nice Italy you got there. It'd be a shame if a bunch of Algerians showed up. Although actually, I just realized Algeria, not on that list. Shout out to Algeria. (laughs) But that's the game that Lukashenko is playing. Unlike those country, the firewall of the Mediterranean, where the refugees can be caught before they actually get in the boats and make it to the EU border and thus trigger certain protections, at least on paper, Poland has a border with Belarus. That is an EU border, and so he can shove the migrants right up there and presumably trigger certain rules about how you can't push them back, how you have to treat them with certain standards. And when the EU fails to do that, in fact, when they militarize and lock it down and expel journalists because they have an extremely fucking racist political party, which we'll get to uh, in a second, that doesn't look so good for Germany and the rest of the EU. That is sort of the, the protection scheme that Lukashenko is playing. He said he would flood the zone with drugs and refugees if they didn't take the sanctions off. And now he's done it. Now, I don't think he thinks he's going to get the payout arrangement uh, that other countries got. I don't think he's even looking for it. Again, 5 to $10 billion in personal net worth, uh, uh, a red phone to Russia at all times. He probably doesn't want the EU money. But what he'd probably take is dropping the sanctions, And so that's the play. That's why he throws the migrants uh, at the border. And given the immense amount of negative PR that came to the European Union over this, uh, because there are massive human rights violations, people are just freezing to death in a fucking Polish forest, one can sort of argue he has the advantage I mean, on the 2nd of December, the EU throws a fifth package of sanctions at Lukashenko over continued human rights abuses and the instrumentalization of migrants. Uh, They say that they're imposing measures on 17 individuals and 11 entities, targeting prominent members of the judicial branch and propaganda outlets that contribute to continued repression of civil society, democratic opposition, and independent media outlets and journalists. Uh, it also targeted high-ranking political officials, as well as companies like Bolavia Airlines itself, tour operators, hotels, really punishing the, the whatever the organic uh, tourist industry was for being utilized in this uh, asymmetrical warfare scheme. But despite the sanctions, it, things are kind of still in the air. Uh, Lukashenko has allowed increasingly the migrants to walk back to Minsk and return to their country if if they want but not everybody has the means or desire to do that and so right now you still have a shit ton of refugees there there it's so fucking frozen that a pause button has sort of been pressed and now refugees are being housed in Belarusian warehouse facilities that are absolutely atrocious, as one might imagine. Uh, it's not a good situation, but it's one that remains ongoing, essentially. When things warm up, uh, if the EU has not warmed up, it is very likely that this is going to continue. And this is very much going to be something that needs to be addressed in a meaningful and definitive way, because it is so much a prototype of for climate change migrations. If the EU is going to speak with the language they've been speaking with, if they're going to uh, proffer this idea of themselves as the defender of human rights, then they probably need to understand uh, what is about to happen with regards to mass migrations caused by climate change and have a plan for it that isn't just, we'll pay you to knock people over the head there because the there as sea levels rise is going to become increasingly fucking ubiquitous (laughs) but anyway that's belarus uh that's the lukashenko perspective and, and plan poland has had its own response and it may not surprise you to discover that it's been fucking terrible Uh, Poland, since 2015, has been ruled by the Law and Justice Party uh, and Andrzej Duda. Uh, If you're curious uh, about that party, I'll go ahead and confirm for you. They're racist. Big, big racist. You know, think like Tea Party, uh, explicitly anti-immigrant. And if you're thinking like, okay, they're a racist political party. I've seen those before. How racist are they? This racist.
1: AS WE LOOK AROUND THE UNITED STATES, WE OFTEN THINK HAS A BETTER COUNTRY EVER BEEN LED BY WORSE PEOPLE? PROBABLY NOT. SO IN OUR SPARE TIME, WE'VE LOOKED AROUND THE WORLD, WE TRY FROM TIME TO TIME TO BRING LEADERS ON THIS SHOW FROM OTHER COUNTRIES WHO ACTUALLY CARE ABOUT THEIR PEOPLE. THAT'S WHY WE WENT TO HUNGARY THIS SUMMER TO TALK TO Viktor ORBAN. BUT HE'S NOT THE ONLY ONE. WHEN WE SPOKE TO ORBAN, HE MENTIONED OTHER COUNTRIES IN CENTRAL EUROPE THAT HAVE DEFENDED THEIR POPULATIONS. Against international interference. And one of the countries he mentioned was Poland. In the last few nights in Budapest, I've run into a number of Americans who have come here because they want to be around people who agree with them, who agree with you. Do you see Budapest as as a kind of capital of this kind of thinking?
2: The capital of uh, that kind of thinking or one of the capitals, because the other Central European countries are also very competitive and producing very nice ideas and uh, organizing that kind of communities of conservative and uh, and uh, Christian Democrats uh, thinkers as we do.
1: Andrzej Duda is the president of Poland, and we're honored to be joined by him right now. Mr. President, thank you so much for joining us. We, we know that you're watching what's happening in the United States, and you're watching this massive flow of migrants over Our border, it will total over a million just this year. Something very similar happened to Europe in 2015. The EU pressured Poland and other nations in Central Europe to accept, and Poland fought back. Tell us why you did that.
0: The answer
1: is very simple. We did not agree back then in 2015 to the so-called quota system, which was proposed by some of the EU member states, which means that every single country would have to accept a given number of migrants. And we gave a very clear answer to that. Whoever wants to come to Poland, whoever is looking for help, assistance, especially refugees who are looking for shelter because they are threatened by war, persecuted in
0: their own countries, if they want to come to Poland, we want them to stay in Poland, live in Poland. So that right there is actually Duda's strongest argument. So since the beginning, the Law and Justice Party, look, they're they're a right-wing populist national conservative political party. That's what they are. You know, they they Trump loved Duda. These guys are they've always been the type to say that immigrants are gonna bring venereal disease. Like this is the sort of, of group we're talking about here. Between them and Viktor Orban, they're all about creating a conservative, Christian, on-the-road-to-fascism uh, state apparatus as quickly as possible. They don't give a fuck about the EU. They say that they're Euro-realists, not Euroskeptics, which really just means they think the EU sucks and is going to fail. And because they've seen that the EU isn't going to play hardball with Hungary or with Poland. They basically just ignore any of their protestations. So, yes, there are rules that say you can't do pushbacks. Well, evidently, Poland can. There are rules that say you have to treat migrants in irregular crossings like you would anyone else. They're not doing that. The journalists that go into the exclusionary zone there, the three-mile buffer, uh, get turned back, get, get pushed back by police. When they are able to make contact with refugees and actually take them to police stations or embassies, they just get stonewalled. You know, they're there with the paperwork and the cameras being a journalist going under article. this. This family here is claiming and they just get absolutely nothing because there's nobody to check Poland for doing this. And the argument Duda made with Tucker is actually, obviously, it's bullshit. I mean, these are people that ran on the idea of shutting down immigration. As I said, these are people that brought in 300 refugees a year versus, you know, the 600,000 that Germany brought in. But that's precisely why their legal argument with the European Union is so persuasive. What they are telling the EU is that they don't have to treat these refugees as their problem and grant them the rights they might normally grant people trying to enter poland because they aren't trying to enter poland poland claims under international law you have to apply for asylum in your country of arrival Poland claims that isn't happening because Poland sucks too much for people to want to live in, so they're going to Germany and France. Which, by the way, Germany and France, back up. The Polish government's like, look, there's probably a fucking million refugees with communities in places like Germany. or a richer country. Honestly, no one should be living in eastern Poland. That's practically our scientific position, to be honest. So we're going to assume that these refugees are not going to fill out the paperwork and become Polish citizens. We're going to assume they're going to do what everyone else is going to do and just keep walking. And if that's what they're doing, then we're not going to treat them like refugees. We're going to treat them like weapons of asymmetrical warfare and respond accordingly, which is overwhelmingly and militarily and beat the drums and... and, Play all the jingoistic psalms. Let the soldiers get on TV and freestyle about how hard it's been guarding the border. Do interviews with the the brave modern day Polish hussars sitting in foxholes in the exclusionary zone. Just just wishing they could go back home to their wife slash mule. They did a fucking Lou Bega uh, like USO tour. They did a military concert with Lou fucking Bega. They found him. He was in eastern Poland, the place nobody was looking. They have turned this into a whole ready-the-military, wartime footing, it's-time-to-defend-the-homeland style thing. And that, to me, is what is probably the most depressing about it. Other than the fact that they seem to be getting away with this, it's just what this denotes for the future. Like If this is what we're going to see from climate change, these mass migrations weaponized into locations where years of capitalist extraction have created a scarcity mindset and for all intents and purposes, reality for the lower classes, which then only serves to fan the flames of resentment and energize right-wing national projects. If that's what we're going to see from the migrations out of climate change, then holy shit, is it gonna be bad. I, I don't know the answer to this, I would say probably left-wing governments that center uh, human experience, <laughs> but that uh, you know, a basic an appreciation for the shared and basic human dignity of all peoples, because you were born without requesting it, just like everyone else, and you have to struggle just like everyone fucking else. Maybe that would address it nicely, but it seems like. Uh, Doing F-16 flyovers is, is what Poland, and and through its tacit acceptance of all this, the European Union is setting us up for. So that's deeply depressing, but not as deeply depressing as the migrant perspective. Uh, from their perspective, they're just fucked. That's all it is. I mean, the, the place you're from is fucked. All of a sudden you see ads for cheap flights to a, a place that isn't your fucked homeland. Uh, they're running all the time. You get there. There's a fucking valet ready to take you to the border. Why would you not do that? That makes total sense. And the reaction that you're getting, that this isn't even getting smashed in the face in Morocco by some local policeman there. You made it to the EU border and the EU is still mashing you in the face. There's nowhere that apparently wants to take you. Germany talks big about like, oh, well, you know, we would love to help out these migrants, but oh, they're just stuck in Poland. It's like, well, isn't that convenient for you? Uh, It is absolutely a horrible situation for them with no real aid in sight. So, fuck. That was a depressing episode. I got, you know what, I I got two grab bag things. Here, well, <laughs> and by the way, if anyone has anything, I know I probably fuck stuff up talking about this, so feel free to tweet at me, you know, at Dumb and Awful, or hit me on Patreon and tell me what shit I completely got wrong. But uh, just so we don't go out on an absolute fucking bummer of a topic, let's uh, turn our focus. To the great sport of football, or as they call it in America, gay. <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't do that after earlier, but it's, it's fucking right there. And actually, I, I I fucked up the intro because it is depressing, actually. This one's a bummer too. I, I saw a headline for a story titled, Soccer looks different when you can't see who's playing. Uh, this is written by John Muller in, in five thirty eight. Uh, I got there by googling Polish topics, not 538 topics, and let me just say how fucking dare you. Uh, And the article reads, During the 2018 World Cup, Zito Madu pointed out the racially coded language commentators used to describe a match between Poland and Senegal, which didn't line up with what he saw on the field. A typical article claimed that Poland struggled all game against the pace and physicality of Senegal, which is an absurd line for anyone who watched the game, Madhu wrote in SB Nation. It felt like an example of a widespread tendency to focus on black players' pace and power, while praising white players for things like intelligence and work ethic. That, by the way, if you're not a a sports person, that's something you see in in football a a lot, Uh, but it's really everywhere. Commentators will Point out how you know athletic or strong or slippery or fast that a black athlete is, and then if you look at a white athlete, it's always oh that's a character guy right there, just a lunch pail player, you know, a team leader, a, a steady hand. Uh, that's the sort of guy you want in the locker room, and it's just like it's always a little bit suspect, isn't it? Uh, and so this article continues. How would that same game have looked? to viewers who literally could not see race. Sam Gregory was working for the Canadian data provider SportLogic a, a couple years ago when Toronto FC director of analytics Devin pluer came to him with an idea. The company's broadcast tracking technology can capture how players move their limbs and reproduce their stick figure skeletons in a two-dimensional render. So, if Gregory's Sport Logic colleagues and Pleur showed the same clips to different viewers as either a video or an anonymized animation, they could measure how attitudes toward race and gender affect how we see soccer. The resulting paper, "Pace and Power: Removing Unconscious Bias from Soccer Broadcasts," caused a stir when they presented it at last month's New England Symposium on Statistics and Sports. Of the 47 sports fans who watched a two-minute clip, Of the World Cup TV broadcast, 70% said that Senegal, whose players were all black, was more athletic or quick. But of 58 others who saw an animation of the same two minutes without knowing which teams they were watching, 62% picked Poland, whose players were all white, as the more athletic side. The physical advantages that supposedly defined the African team's style of play disappeared as soon as their skin color did. Gregory sees it as a good sign that audiences who watched the video and the stick figures didn't show significant disagreement on the survey's other three questions about which team was more technically skilled, tactically organized, or physical. The fact that we got such similar results suggests that at least people were able to tell what's happening from the renders, he said. The athleticism flip-flop offers a new kind of evidence of a prejudice that affects how black players of every nationality are perceived. For decades, researchers have documented media stereotypes of African players as powerful, big thighed lithe light-of-body, big, explosive, and like lightning, attributes that were to be contrasted with the, the know-how that England possesses. As Belgian forward Romelu uh, Lukaku, who's black, told the New York Times, It is never about my skill when I am compared to other strikers. Now, for the first time, researchers have a way to isolate how race influences direct perceptions of the game. Gregory hopes that measuring unconscious bias will be a step towards changing conversations about black athletes. Last year, there were all these discussions around Black Lives Matter, and there were player protests, he said. Obviously, the issues off the pitch were more important than the issues on the pitch, but it does feel like even when that conversation was happening, there's very little discussion about racial bias in the way we talk about players. The study also examined attitudes toward gender by showing viewers a pair of two-minute clips, one from the American top-flight National Women's Soccer League and another from League Two, the English men's fourth tier. Even though the NWSL draws more fans to games, its average player earns about a quarter as much as the average player in League Two. Gregory and Pluer were... Curious whether this clear gender pay gap could be explained by a difference in the quality of the soccer shown on TV, as some have argued. But people who watched the broadcast said that the men's game was higher quality by a 57% to 43% margin. Those that saw the renders, though, with genderless stick figures preferred the women's match, 59% to 41%. The results weren't statistically significant across a small sample of 105 mostly male respondents, but Plur believes the line of research is promising. I think these results are suggestive that your average soccer fan can't tell the difference between something that does have a large investment level and the women's game, which does not. Unconscious biases don't just color the way fans and media talk about sports. They could hurt players' earnings and career prospects, not to mention cost points on the table for teams that aren't spending their money wisely. Gregory, who's now the director of analytics at Miami, <laughs> God damn it, <laughs> thinks body pose data might help clubs check their player evaluations. Scouting, to me, is the obvious one, he said. Skin tone has previously been shown to correlate with differences in football manager ratings. That's a... Uh, a video game simulator where you get to be a little Ted Lasso and you know trade and make your own team. Uh, and apparently clubs sometimes use uh, football manager ratings in their real-life scouting processes. <laughs> Anonymized renders could help determine whether pro scouts exhibit similar biases. The idea is that over time, hopefully people will realize that this is a source of bias and they'll be able to change it within themselves, Gregory said. None of us are unbiased in anything we do. So I think a big part of challenging bias is acknowledging it. So that's the article. It's a 538 article. It's interesting data, right? It's wh- when you can't see the video, you think Poland is athletic and more quick. And then when you can actually see the full broadcast, you go, oh no, that can't be right. They're the slow Polak dipshits and Senegal are fast as shit. Like, yes, that implicit association bias that people have that I have, that you have, is real because everyone has implicit association biases. Uh, I know this, by the way, because I used to do psych research uh, using this. What you would do is you would uh, bring people in, and you know you'd have to hit one button for the word was good. And one button for the word was bad. So like good words would be like smile, kitten, whatever, and the bad words would be like you know murder, graveyard, whatever. Uh, there's a, a you can source the relative valences of different words. It's been studied a lot. You just throw it in, um, and so you you have some idea of yes this word really is good, yes this word really is bad. And so what you do is you'd flash pictures, control pictures, white faces, black faces, and then measure the time it took for somebody to complete the task of either selecting always the good word or selecting always the bad word. And what you would find when everyone did it is that people are generally much quicker going from an in-group face, so same race face, to a good word than they are going from a different race space to a good word. And about what you might expect appears with the bad words, right? So if you're a white person, you see a black face, and then there's like surprise party. <laughs> you're, you're like, huh? <laughs> you hover for, uh, you know, we're talking tenths of a second or whatever here before you hit it. And this is all going very, very quick. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a black person and you see a white face and then it says like doom you hit that shit real quick you're like yep that was a bad one that's definitely the bad word yep and look they did a whole bunch of different versions of this and the takeaway is more or less that uh, people more readily and easily link positive associations with in groups right like that's that was the takeaway and, you know, that, that seemed very depressing, but it felt like medicine, you know. And so for like the last 10 years, we have seen especially like police departments get this implicit association training um, with the idea that like, well, look, now you, you took the test and, you know, there's the numbers on the screen. The technology says, you know, you, you have a, a racial bias, which like, oh, that that's very spooky, right? Uh, once you know that, you're going to want to change it. Turns out that's not the way things work. Number one, it turns out a lot of these implicit association bias tests uh, are measuring other things, you know? Like you have to take the test at a very large sample size because otherwise if you just come in, uh, take the test for 10 minutes, and then fuck off. If you had a coffee beforehand or you're in a bad mood, sh- there could be some real fucking lurking variables in there. But even assuming... That the data it produced was measuring the thing that it was supposed to. Beholding that data doesn't do anything. I actually appreciate the fact that the five thirty eight writer uh, proposed a commercial use for this. Like, hey, you know what? If you're a soccer scout and you've got to watch a bunch of uh, film, maybe we could, you know, mocap it for you and put it in stick figures so you, you can really get a line on who's good and who isn't that's about the only use case for this sort of shit that matters because otherwise you get otherwise it's a reflection of that that liberal ideal of like well once you know once you once you've read that you're bad you'll need to change no just people people don't and i remember when these uh, iat's these implicit association tests came out it was all over the fucking New York Times. It was in Malcolm Gladwell's Blink because the idea was, you know, we're in an environment in which racism is not tolerated. It, it is, uh, you know, very uh, socially toxic to be racist. And so here's this great product where you can take it and, and get an objective numerical score of how much of your bias you need to work on still. And that may may perhaps in the mind of someone who is already motivated to work on those biases, help out. But then you didn't need the, the data point. You were already going to do that anyway. You could have had your desires confirmed and, and your actions ratified by any number of data points. It just ended up being this one because you were already reading Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, right? But for everyone else, a machine going, bleep, bloop, uh, you have a bias now. Thank you very much. Uh, is not something that inspires a whole lot of credibility. And on a societal level, uh, I'm going to go ahead and stick with we probably need a a materialist solution because uh, my dinner parties say that racism is gauche now ended up not being the universalizing force against racism uh, that the New York Times reader of the 2010s kind of hoped it would be. Anyway, it's, I don't even know what I'm fucking talking about anymore. It is 1 a.m. on January 14th. I got to fucking put this thing out. But before I do, <laughs> let me just give you one bit of joy. Apparently, you know how they make those stupid... You know how they make those stupid like Christmas tree or, or bass or fucking... It's a sheep. I don't know. Whatever the fuck it is. They're stuffed animals and you clap or you touch them and they do a little dance and they sing a song. Well, apparently... Uh, There was a very cute stuffed cow that would do a fun, fun little cow dance whenever you poked its belly, and it was in Polish, and so no one knew what it was saying, but, you know, it it, it sounded nice. Uh, I looked up the lyrics to the Polish cow song from the Stuffed Animal. The name of the song is uh, apparently, Where is the White Eel?, this translation is on lyrics translation from a user who is literally called bong hitter 69 420 good for that's that's who we got translating polish. Um, it, it's a very cute song. Uh, I, I'll play it as as the outro. It's entirely about getting fucked up on cocaine. <laughs> the Lyrics to the children's toy. What it's singing at your kid is and, and by the way, apparently this is very popular uh, in Poland, just just a banger. The lyrics are. The only thing in my head is five grams of cocaine fly away alone to the edge of oblivion. I have thoughts in my head. When will this all end? Whenever I'm not alone because a white eel will fly in. The only thing in my head is five grams of cocaine fly away alone to the edge of oblivion. I have thoughts in my head. When will all this end? Whenever I'm not alone because a white eel will fly in. I have a dream descent. I don't catch stars. I lie like a log. I don't believe what's going on. I cluck like a hungry hen. I'm like a werewolf to the moon. My head's empty like a street in front of your dorm. I melt like a bar which is lying on the counter. Going down is when you don't pull. Brother, my face is getting fucked up. My head's a brothel just like on TV. I'm not surprised by such a state. Lack of goods in my mind. I get high whenever. I'll make it or not. I'll sell everything from my crib. I'm actually fucked up already. However, everything's sold already. I'm only struggling with the debts. Nose like tabaluga second day without snorting. Where's the snake? White chemistry. Descending is so damn exhausting. As if locusts bite off your cock. That's verse one. So anyway, I leave you with the cow song. Uh, thanks for listening to Dumb and Awful. We'll, we'll do some theory stuff this
2: weekend bo wiedzie biały węgorz chemia party chcę na narty do Dillera a nie w Alpe. orzesz kurwa chyba fitne jak w nohala nic nie psikne tak bardzo chcę dotykać gwiazd ale nic z tego bo mam zjazd totalne kurwa mega zejście a marzy mi się smoka wejście masz hajsy ci też zalegam no to chuj dziś już nie biegam chcę mieć kopa jak pantera w krechę nie ma u Dillera już nie na pewno nie Chyba śmierć rozkłada mnie, nikt nie przemknę Mam deszcze, kurwa mać, ile jeszcze będzie trwał ten stan śni mi się koksuwan i herygram Tak dla smaku chcę się wozić w Cadillac'u Myślami poznajomych biegam, lecz każdemu coś zalegam Odpada opcja od pożyczki, bo przycinam jak nożyczki. Tylko jedno w głowie mam, koksu pięć gram, odleciec sam Krainę zapomnienia w głowie myśli mam Kiedy skończy się ten stan Gdy już nie będę sam Bo wiedzie biały węgorz jak na Discovery Chcę wystrzelić jak z givery Chcę hery inny bajery W nosie pustka słychać szmery Macie numer do gargamela? Może u niego w odle jest hera? Wiem! Głupoty pierdolę, ale nie mam nic na stole, a w kieszeni jebana pustka, przydałaby się w totka szóstka, albo chociaż jakaś czwórka i bym leciał jak jaskuka, jak... Pszczółka maja, do ucha śpiewałaby Mikaja kaja to są jaja, no nie wierzę Wigięty leżę jak choć zwierzę Gorączka furwę, się nasila Bo tany jak dupa fakira Jak ścira, wymiętolony Leżę kurwa, rozpalony Hej, chciałbym posypać I na łące jak królik brykać Ale cały czas ten zjazd Usycham jak wyrwany chwast Tylko jedno w głowie mam Koksu pięć gram Krainę zapomnienia w głowie myśli mam, kiedy skończy się ten stan, gdy już nie będę sam, bo wiedzie biały węgorz.